On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the Buy American program, the shadow minister for export and trade for Canada joins us to talk about what the government should do to try and get back to the table and open the door again for Canadian businesses. And we're also talking about dying. There are studies that find there is spontaneous cardiac activity in 14% of people who die. Seconds, minutes after they die, their heart, ba-boom, 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 by itself. Is this freaky? What does this tell us? Well, someone who's been doing a study on this joins us. You'll want to hear this discussion. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, if you were with us, we were talking about the Buy American. And once again, that's B-U-Y, not B-Y-E. B-U-Y, Buy American bill that Joe Biden has signed into law once he got into the presidential office. Which means that government agencies in the U.S. must now purchase goods that are made in the United States, except in rare circumstances where exemptions are granted, possibly because that thing can't be found in the United States. It's not made there, so we have to find it elsewhere. But exemptions. And at the time we were talking about this, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business was on here talking about the fact that you know, give or take the 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 piece of the, the the pie, the entire pie that we're talking about is probably worth about a trillion dollars. And the Canadian businesses would be vying for a piece of that. And the suggestion at that time was our government should be doing stuff, should be working now to try and find cracks to find ways into those exemptions to make sure that Canadian companies still have that market that they can sell their goods to. It's too valuable to do nothing. Question is, how do you do that? Tracy Gray is the conservative MP from Kelowna Lake Country. She's also the shadow minister for export promotion and international trade, a title that sounds like it's gotten far more complicated all of a sudden. She joins us now. Uh, Tracy, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hi, Scott. Nice to be here. Before we get into the how, because I think the how is the question that everybody is trying to figure out. Um, if the total pie is in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars or so, and we don't know exactly how much, how much do you think Canadian businesses stand to lose from this law, this bill that keeps us theoretically out? Well, you know, Scott, as we look at this, we we need to look at what's actually been implemented in the executive order. So there are, as you've mentioned, much tougher Buy America rules now than what we've seen in the past. And so uh, just to lay it out quickly, there's three, there's a number of changes, but probably the three biggest ones that uh, would likely affect Canadian businesses include, um, you know, there's a new director of Made in America cracking down on waivers. Uh, So it'll be a lot harder to issue these. Uh, waivers will have to be publicly posted so that U.S. businesses can appeal, and um, they've raised the U.S. content requirements. So, you know, as, as we look at this, it just becomes much tougher for any Canadian companies that are doing business like this right now in the U.S., and also much tougher to get into the market because, of course, you always want to be expanding your expanding your business. We we don't have right now uh, a real opportunity here with Kuzma. So that's the that's the new NAFTA, you know, that has just come into effect as of right. last year. And so there there's a chapter in Kuzma called Chapter 13, uh, which actually addresses government procurement. However, when our government was negotiating 
uh, into into Kuzma, uh, we were not part of Chapter 13. Chapter 13 is between the U.S. and Mexico only, and so we don't we don't have an option to really deal with this in the new free trade agreement that we just that we just signed. And so, you know, what we're asking for as the official opposition is to immediately get to the table and uh, do what the former conservative uh, government did back when President Obama put in uh, more strict Buy America policies, which was to negotiate exemptions for Canada. The challenge there, though, the challenge here, I would think, is that there's a real political aspect to why Joe Biden did this, because he's trying to bolster his standing in a few of those heavily manufacturing states that were either really close in the election or went to Trump. And this is a this is a this isn't just a a, a business move, an economic move. There is a deep political part of this. How, how then do you convince them, or how should our government convince them? that we should be allowed to do the stuff that we got those exemptions for under Obama? Well, we have to remember that our supply chains are very integrated. You know, there are a number of products. And of course, you know, in, in Hamilton, there's a huge manufacturing in Hamilton. And so, the, you know, there, there's a, a number of products that will go back and forth across the border many times in Canada before you have, before you have the final product. So with our supply chains being so integrated, uh, it's really important that we're still allowed to do that. You know, right now, because these uh, this executive order is so uh, is so new, uh, you know, businesses are are starting to investigate this. We've already had some statements from a number of, uh, of business organizations having concern with this. And so, as each individual business looks at how this is going to affect them, it, it really does come down to workers, right? So if if uh, if sales go down, if opportunities go down, it really truly is about supporting supporting workers and making sure that people don't lose jobs. You know that's where we're coming from. Even if the piece of the pie, regardless of how big that piece is, every piece is important to each business and to each worker. And so, for even one person to lose a job, we we have so much uncertainty right now. You know, there, we've been through so much that we need to focus on keeping jobs for people. And that's where our focus is. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Before the break, Tracy, you were saying, and, and look, I think everything you said, people would generally agree with. We, we need to have our government involved in these discussions. We, are, we don't want any Canadian jobs lost or as few as possible. It's very tough times. This is very disruptive and all the rest. But the question is how we we don't have the clout or the heft, I don't think, to retaliate in any significant way or to flex our muscles, even if we thought that was a good strategy, do we? So how do we how do we get to the table and convince them that they have to listen to us? Well, that's a great question and and a couple of things. So first of all, you know, we can't forget that this executive order uh, was was part of the platform, you know, of, of Biden's platform, although we didn't know that no one really maybe knew the extent of it. So this is something that the government should have been planning for. You know, this this wasn't a surprise. And so they, they should have had plans in place. But as I said earlier, you know, we've been able to negotiate exemptions. We, we were able to do that back in 2010. So uh, we have a very, you know, integrated economy. And it's a matter of having that um, that relationship and, and having the right people at the table and 
and, and sitting down and, and making sure that, that we can come to arrangements. You know, I mean, right now the government basically has been, you know, expressing concern or disappointment, um, but that, that's not action. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't address the important issues uh, that, that businesses and, and workers are going to be facing here. No, uh, it also, though, um, what do we do if, and we don't know yet because it's still pretty new and the negotiations haven't started, but if if the U.S. government has dug in on this one and says, no, we're really taking this seriously. In fact, Biden had a comment saying the last administration didn't take this seriously, which was kind of daunting because everyone was thinking, wait a second, Trump was really pro-American and everything. Um, If they decide to dig in their heels, what can we do about it? Well, this is what this is why you know we need to be uh, listening to businesses how this is going to affect them. We need to see how this affects all the various supply chains. As I said earlier, we have a very integrated supply chain, so it's a matter of of uh, working with counterparts in the United States and and getting to the table and um, and also making sure that we're hearing from all of the affected stakeholders and uh, you know how this is actually affecting affecting them. You know, I'll just give you one, one quick example. I heard from a very small business in, in my riding uh, that, uh, that has a product that they sell through a distributor in the U.S., and they're not sure whether or not they'll still be able to do that. This U.S. distributor sells to uh, the American government in one of their departments. So there's a lot of uncertainty right now. We don't know how this will affect individual businesses. And so as we, you know, as we get that feedback, uh, then we'll have a much clearer idea uh, how this will actually be affecting workers and, and businesses. Should the should we should Canada should the Canadian government, if this becomes a difficult negotiation, introduce any kind of similar buy Canadian bill that would say that any government agency in Canada must buy only Canadian goods if it's available here? It won't have the same impact, obviously, but would that be an effective step, or would that be shooting ourselves in the foot to spite our face? Well, I think we need to look at what options, you know, we have within our existing framework. And as I mentioned, we under, you know, under Kuzma, we, you know, we don't have a lot of options there. We do, uh, that does revert us back to the World Trade Organization, uh, which in some respects hasn't been fully, fully functioning uh, because of the participation with the U.S. And so, you know, we've got to look at what those different trading options are uh, that we can you know, that we can utilize. I mean, you know, right now we have, we have, uh, we have goods and services and supplies every day going across our borders. So we want to make sure we're, we're trading, we're a trading nation, you know, Canada is a trading nation and it's really important to work with our closest partners to make sure that, that, that that still functions. And so it's, it's a matter of getting to the table and having those conversations so that, uh, so that the governments, you know, fully understand how this will affect both countries, because our, you know, our mutual economic recovery as we come out of the pandemic is very important, and uh, and so you know we've seen supply chains that have been affected during this time in many different ways. I'm on a, a number of different different groups and 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 calls all the time about about this, and I think we've seen how important it is to keep trade working and functioning both across our country and also with our important trading partners. 
And again, I, I agree with with that for sure. But ultimately, we, we can hope that the government can get to the table. I think I, I think we agree, and we can hope that they have skillful negotiators there who can make this work. But I mean, fair to say that ultimately we are, regardless of how much we might hope, we are at the mercy to some degree of where the Americans stand on this and their willingness to open that door again. Because there's not much we can do if they decide they don't want to. Well, I guess, I guess, like I said, it, 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 you know, it's also part of, of fully understanding what those supply chains are and how it's going to be affecting businesses and workers on both sides of the border. And, you know, I mean, hope, hope is an action. <laughs> so, uh, so this is why we're calling on the government to get to the table immediately and to start those conversations immediately and to not delay it and, uh, and to, to meet with their counterparts immediately because hope isn't going to resolve this. Tracy Gray, Shadow Minister for Export Promotion and International Trade, a, a job that has become, I would think, just amazingly more complex in the last few days. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We'll talk about something that it may, it may freak you out a little bit. Uh, when you die and your heart stops beating, you're declared dead. And if you've signed an organ donor card, and I hope you have since you don't need those things anymore, and there's probably someone who does or could live because you give them those organs, the medical staff would then begin prepping you to take those parts and save someone else's life. And that's great in a kind of bleak, freaky kind of way. But wait a second, because apparently in almost one in eight cases, some kind of cardiac activity spontaneously occurs as much as four and a half minutes after the heart has been determined to have stopped. Which you can think about that for a second, or you don't, (laughs) if it's too much. Um, The idea that somehow your heart could still beat after you've been declared dead would probably be, depending on how this definition is, right up there with being buried alive maybe as something that it would be the worst fear that people would have. But what does it actually mean? And does it mean you're still alive or is it something else? Dr. Sonny Danani is the Chief of Critical Care at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa. He joins us now. Dr. Danani, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was a, a great in, in, intro. I'm done. Well, well <laughs> I, so I, I'm hearing this idea that somehow, you know, the doctors have now declared me dead. I mean, hopefully it's a long way off, but I'm lying on the table and they say, no, he's dead. I'm sorry. Pull the blanket over his head. And then four and a half minutes later, suddenly a pulse of some kind is detected does that mean that I'm not really dead or what does that mean? So this is exactly why we wanted to do this study. Uh, a rare study, never been done before. Uh, many centers in Canada, uh, in Europe as well, including uh, centers from Hamilton. And we really wanted to study the dying process uh, scientifically uh, in detail um, to reinforce confidence um, especially in organ donation and, you know, particularly uh, around this area of determining death. And really what we wanted to, to do is reaffirm standards and make sure our Canadian standards are appropriate. And the reason we wanted to study this dying process is exactly some of the anecdotes you're saying. We've all heard stories of people coming back to life. Uh, gravestones have bells that had a little wire into the into the coffin if you were buried alive (laughs) that you could ring the bell um the so-called dead ringer um the 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 the, uh the media is filled with these stories and they're ongoing and it's not just uh the public it's 
it's the medical profession. Uh, you know, there are similar stories of um, resuscitations uh, uh, being stopped, CPR being stopped, and people coming back to life. And we wanted to, we were worried about those stories um, and the impact it was having on donation. Um, we were worried that uh, medical communities uh, weren't offering donations because of these worries. We were worried that the that the the people going through a catastrophic situation where their family member was dying in an ICU, uh, there was no hope for recovery. They were offered donation and they, they might be refusing because they were worried about coming back to life or organs being retrieved. So this is exactly why we've done the study. So, so when is someone officially dead? As you're standing at the bedside and you have to unfortunately make that call, when do we know that that person is really, it sounds like the Wizard of Oz, is really, really dead? <laughs> I, so I'm going to focus on donation because I think that's when it's most important. And it's most important, okay. one, for trust, um, because I think we, we need to have the public um, uh, consenting to donation with the trust that the organs uh, are going to be removed and recovered and someone else is going to be saved um, after their loved one is dead. But only and after their loved one is dead. Yeah, that's the point, dead. right. And for the medical community, um, we, for donation, follow something uh, that we call the dead donor rule, where, in fact, organs can only be recovered after that firm determination of death. And what we do in Canada is after the heart stops and the so-called flatline, we wait five minutes of flatline. And, and has there ever been a case... And has there ever been a case where, because we've talked about, you know, that we can see this spontaneous pulse. Do we know of any cases where there has been any kind of spontaneous cardiac activity after a five-minute mark? No. We wanted to prove it. And that's exactly what we did. Our, uh, our examination of uh, heart rates and blood pressures that were monitored beat by beat, uh, uploaded to a secure uh, uh, website, analyzed with the computer programs and artificial intelligence, and then had uh, human uh, adjudicators review every stop and every restart uh, to make sure uh, that we had this timing right. And, you know, before that happened, we approached families. We approached families in a really difficult situation where they had come to a decision with their medical teams uh, that their loved one had no hope for recovery and was going to die after removing life-sustaining therapies. And what we did is we asked those families, could we continue to monitor uh, before, during uh, the withdrawal of life support and um, 30 minutes after the determination of death so that we had this window um, to monitor um, heart activity. The, we, I've heard, and I'm sure many people listening have heard of, uh, after people have died, you'll hear about uh, people's bodies moving slightly, spasms. It could be an arm or a facial muscle or whatever. Yeah. When you hear of spontaneous cardiac activity happening after you've flatlined, is that what this, I mean, the heart is just a muscle. Is that what this is? Is it exactly the same thing that it's just the heart that has spasmed or done something like that, or is it different? Yeah, I think that's quite a reasonable interpretation. The heart itself is one of our strongest organs, strongest muscle. Um, and so it's not unreasonable to think that in some individuals, that heart doesn't just stop. 
that at times it stops and restarts a little bit and then stops for good. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw that in 14% of patients, uh, which was 67 patients, um, that the heart did stop and restart. Uh, reassuringly, that usually happened within the first one or two minutes. Like you've already mentioned, the longest period before it restarted was four minutes and 20 seconds. And how long did it restart for? Usually seconds, often less than five seconds. There was some variability in that. And so, again, we're reassured that when this happens, um, it happens in a short time period. And for organ donation, to reemphasize, we already wait five minutes. And so seeing this happen within a four-minute and 20-second window um, is, uh, it w- was reassuring for us that uh, our standards of practice are appropriate um, here in Canada. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. Donati, you, you said that we, we have these cases where there is a flat line. We, we believe the person is dead, but we're waiting. And there can be this spontaneous cardiac activity. If we detected a some cardiac activity at that moment and we're fast with the paddles or fast with the whatever, CPR, whatever... Could we revive that person? Is there a chance that we could bring them back if we just time it right and we're ready to go at that exact moment when their heart seems amenable to it? Great question. Um, And to do that, let me clarify a couple of things just so, um, you know, we're on the same page. The first first thing is though we're seeing return of cardiac activity at no point in our study, and I suspect in most cases, that there's already been a declaration of death. Um, and so, so most cases, we, we, we wait for this activity to stop. And in donation, we absolutely wait for this activity okay. to stop. Okay, good. So okay. No, one's, no one's coming uh, back uh, after the, the declaration. And the, same, the second point that's important is that um, no one in our study actually came back to life. Uh, none of the patients regained consciousness. Uh, uh, and, and nobody made any movements. That every, though, even in the patients that had return of this activity, the cardiac or heart activity, that nobody lived. And that's important because that was the context in an ICU. Those are the people who are going to be donors. There's a, a decision with the family that there's no hope for recovery. And the withdrawal of life support, and, uh, and at that point, there actually isn't a plan to resuscitate the heart again or the body again. And so that's really clear for the context. So we're not sure. I, I'm not sure I could answer your question. But in a different context, that's what CPR does. When uh, in a normally healthy patient uh, and the heart stops or stops beating and you put the paddles on, and you do CPR, that's the intent. That's what we want, and that's, that's the hope that there is a recovery of back to life. This is really a different situation where actually the intent is to let the, the, the people's loved one pass away, and hopefully in this context, uh, they've consented to don- donation. So a different context. All right, let me get to the other question that I'm sure that many people, because again, I said off the top and I meant it. I mean, this is a nightmare scenario for people either being buried alive or that something happens. And 
if there was a pulse at the time, so later on, and, and maybe pulse is the wrong word again, some heart activity, do you believe that people in that context, do you believe that people in that context are capable of any sensory activity? Do you think that they could hear what's going on? Do you think they could feel anything? Or do you believe at that point, for all intents and purposes, they really are dead? Uh, my, my comfortable answer is no. I do not believe they have sensation or comfort. Not with the type of activity, and pulse is a good word, because pulse is different from electricity. Uh, it's about moving blood flow. And what would be important would be if there was a pulse, was it enough and long enough blood flow uh, to, to um, feed the brain? That's how you would be sensate or conscious. I don't think that happened. But I think that's an excellent question. And uh, what I might suggest is that would be something that, that our team is going to study further to make that correlation between heart activity and blood flow uh, and brain activity and blood flow. This is a, we only have a few seconds left and it's terribly unfair to, for me to even ask you this question because we only have 30 seconds and I don't know how you can possibly answer in that time, but I'm going to try anyway. Can you explain the dying process as simply as you can? Because in Hollywood, you say your last words, you take a breath, you close your eyes and yeah. you're gone and everything is immediately stopped. Is that what we believe? Not the whole breath and the last words and everything, but when the heart stops, when the brain function stops again, is there a belief that there's anything still going on in the body that is still happening or, or is that it? So it's a complex interaction with the lungs, the heart and the brain. And, um, as one's dying, um, people stop breathing and oxygen levels drop. The blood pressure, the blood, the heart weakens and the blood pressure is lower. So it's a cycle of less blood flow and less oxygen to all the organs, especially the heart and the brain. And over time, and it's variable in every instance and in every situation and every person, um, that, that heart and the brain cease to function. Um, and, and so that, you know, that's, that's the, end story the the circle uh, for all 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 patients but it's quite variable on how quickly that happens based on how old they are what diseases they have and and the function of those those organs um but once the body stops um you know our hope is that there is some time to recover those organs and that's how that's that's the whole um theory behind transplantation is that even though the body is dead and the heart and blood flow and brain are no longer functioning, that the liver, the kidney, the lungs could be resuscitated and tra transplanted successfully. It is, uh, it is fascinating. As I say, it freaks a few people out, maybe a lot of people out. I'm not sure, but I, this, this is, uh, I could talk about this for hours. Unfortunately, we don't have hours. We, uh, we're out of time, but I wish we could uh, do more. Dr. Sonny Danani well, from I the... I hope it opens a conversation. Well, I believe that there's a lot of people who will be having some conversations, whether they're comforted by this or something else. And I think they should be. But you know what? It is it is an uncomfortable thing for a lot of people. Uh, Dr. Sunny Danani, Chief of Critical Care at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.